0: All we understood was that I was an event planner, I needed this, and we were gonna build for me. And the worst part was everyone said they wanted this tech too, I asked everyone. And when we launched it, nobody really used it. Really, it was that lack of truly understanding our user that made it challenging for us to sell this thing. I feel like an enterprise seller would get a PhD by working in this space where creativity and complexity and humans all
1: come together, and you're selling to businesses. You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications. Check us out at replicated.com. The Enterprise Ready podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. In this episode of the Enterprise Ready Podcast, I'm joined by Ben Hindman, founder and CEO of Splash, an events marketing platform used by many of the largest enterprises. We dive into Ben's path to enterprise software, including some of his initial misfires and eventual realization that yes, he was actually selling enterprise software. We discussed the freemium business model that launched Splash, how an early big deal propelled them into the enterprise, the features they built in order to support that deal, including advanced role-based access control and single sign-on. Finally, we ended up some of the core metrics that Ben tracks as indicators of business performance. This interview was a lot of fun for both Ben and I, so I really hope that you enjoy it as much as we did. All right, Ben, thanks for joining us. Hi, Grant. Thanks for having me. Cool. Uh, So I'd love to just have you share a little bit of your background, especially around how you got into enterprise software eventually. Sure. So
0: I am not an enterprise software guy. Uh, My background is in events. I've been throwing events my whole life. I love events. I think that they're the most powerful way for people to connect and for business to get done. I've been throwing events uh, since I threw my prom. Then I uh, was the rush chair for my fraternity. So I know about events from that angle. I was one of the co-founders of a conference called The Summit Series, which is a big conference for top entrepreneurs. And then I ran events for Thrillist, which is an online magazine for for dudes. I was running events for them for about two years. And oh gosh, about two years into that, I realized that I needed software for myself. And so I started building it with a buddy of mine who was a very talented PHP JavaScript engineer. We got to coding and we built a pretty interesting piece of technology called one clipboard. that was our first piece of tech, and the rest is history. is that right? I mean, I wish it were <laughs> that easy. One clipboard failed pretty miserably. One That's clipboard was a uh, events management technology that we so you, built for about two years. you were building everything that you ever wanted, and then you realized you were wrong. yeah, exactly. I was the only person we were building for, and the worst part was everyone said they wanted this tech too. I asked everyone, and when we launched it. Nobody really used it. What did that piece of software do? So So that piece of software was a task list, contact list, budgeting tool, and drop site that mad-libbed event contracts. What does drop site mean? I don't know what that is. Meaning I had to drop a a piece of paper on it. Usually as an event planner, you'll have like a site map or some sort of contract or invoice that you need to keep track of. And you want to associate it with the budget. The budget in the events world is really like the center point of the project management. Mm. And so what we did was we created this incredible budgeting tool that, that had all of these great additions to it that were perfectly esoterically designed for an event process and as I said, it mad libed event contracts, which is like a dream to any event planner. Anyone who's listening to this that has planned an event and doesn't know how to create contracts is like salivating. Sure. And so we built that. It took us about a year and a half, and we raised venture capital from one person, about $400,000. Oh, wow, one person? Two, yeah, in two sets. He was an angel investor. He really believed in us. And I hired two incredible engineers. They were like the best engineers. So it was three engineers and me. And we were building one clipboard.
1: And you were building this, I mean, not as enterprise software. You're building this as like a piece of software that. Anybody that was planning an event, like a fraternity chair, might use anybody else.
0: That's exactly. Well, yeah. you know, we were building it for people who are professional planners because okay. that's who I was. Sure. I certainly, as we can probably get into later, I had no idea what truly enterprise meant. Sure. But I understood we, at the time, high rise and base camp and thirty seven signals were really hip, and so we really looked up to those guys. So we were kind of building with that model in mind.
1: Okay, yeah, sure. That makes we weren't
0: going to fundraise. We felt so good about that, and then of course we put in that money. And we're like, oh gosh, <laughs> good. <laughs> we'll keep on doing that, but truly, it was about to die. It was almost over. Nobody was using it,
1: and so this was you. You built something that was targeted at event planners. Was this like, is that a role that is inside of most big companies? They'll if you have more than five hundred employees, you have professional event planners, or is that more like a thing you work with a outside agency to do?
0: So the person that we were building for for one clipboard, yeah, was anybody who threw an event. Okay. Which is a real issue. I mean, as we dove deeper into this world, so events are a 560 billion dollar industry with every type of person who uses the word events in their title that you could imagine, from mm-hmm. an agency to an in-house to someone in procurement. Mm-hmm. i really is one of the clumsiest words to describe an industry, events. And so to answer your question, at the time we really did not understand that distinction. All we understood was that I was an event planner, I needed this, and we were going to build for me. Mm-hmm. And so we tried to find people who kind of looked like me, everyone from the head of events at Goldman Sachs to a small agency person. And really, it was that lack of truly understanding our user that made it challenging for us to sell this thing.
1: Okay, so you build this first product, it's not getting much traction. Like, how did you end up with Splash? I
0: wanna be clear, zero traction. Zero traction. And we kept on building. I mean, my ego was strong in this experience. Because it was, it was a beautiful piece of software that I loved.
1: But, so you are like okay I, we just need to push harder we can't give up we got to keep grinding we'll get people to adopt this thing eventually it's just it's just about you know it's persistence and perseverance and determination that's That's gonna right be the, i mean and anyone who's created
0: knows this plight where it just feels so good to create something that is beautiful and you feel proud of and everyone said it i mean that's another important point everyone of our users said they really wanted to use this thing and it wasn't like they were lying. They did. But what we learned eventually was that they had a process and that we were kind of retrofitting a new process. And to get them to do something that they didn't need to do, it was very similar to uh, vitamins versus um, painkillers. Sure. We were definitely building vitamins.
1: And I'm guessing that they were just using like an Excel spreadsheet or something. That's, That's right. Like, so
0: we were competing against Microsoft.
1: Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> like the ultimate tool right. for any esoteric job, Excel spreadsheets. right. Okay, so how did Splash come about?
0: So we had a rule that we still have. We called it the Belsky Doctrine. Scott Belsky is the chief product officer at Adobe now. At the time, he was running a business called Behance. Mm -hmm. He was one of our advisors. He said, Ben, no matter what you do, only build one product. Uh, This is a little ironic because Scott has probably built 15 products in one, but... Anyway, he did tell me to do this. Do as I say, not as I do. And I brought that back to my team of amazing engineers. I said, we can only build one thing and we need to promote one clipboard at South by Southwest. So we should build a product. But per this advice from Scott, if we build a product to promote this, we need to build it so that anyone can use it. So that it is self-serve and anyone in the world can also promote their stuff true story. And that's how we built Splash. We said we were going to
1: promote one clipboard at South by Southwest and we launched Splash. So wait, I'm so confused. So the advice was only build one product. So your takeaway from that was if we build something, it has to be part of the product. That's correct. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? I don't think that's what the lesson was supposed to be. Fair enough. Oh man. That's amazing. Yeah. Okay. So you built Splash. And what was the problem you saw? Like, this didn't exist? So, what, what was Splash the- was
0: doing was it was helping people really make their event look online as cool as they wanted it to. It, you know, cool was hard. In the Web 2.0 era, you had, you know, Squarespace was just kind of happening. Right, and so design on the internet was just sort of becoming a thing, and so you know you had Eventbrite sure. and you had Meetup and you had Evite, which was ad supported and no enterprise could use it, and then you had Paperless Post, who had actually gone pretty far down that road, but weren't thinking about it from what a business needed. Mm. And so because in terms, like it didn't have like integrations with CRM, none or of the integration right? stuff, but also just none of the true customization. I mean, okay. in, again, in this zone, we were really focused on design, making it look cool, mm-hmm. and none of these things were available. Again, even in paperless post, it wasn't cool. It was maybe beautiful, mm-hmm. but cool was a different feeling. Uh, we needed it to feel customizable, spacey at the time. We were looking at those guys.
1: Sure, paperless post always felt to me somewhat high end, right? Like, sure. oh, this is because you know it wasn't actually cheap to send, so it feels like there's a little bit of like effort put in. It's great for like you know a fancy invitation to a cocktail party or something, right? Totally. I'll try to remember, think back towards 2012,
0: we were fitting a specific need for kind of this new generation of designers. Sure, you know it maybe wasn't fancy, but it was very clear that you had spent a lot of money on something and kind of like any good technology, ours looked like you'd spent a lot of money on something. Sure. And the fact that we removed our brand, that it was white label. yeah, yeah that was actually one of the biggest, most important things that you know businesses really responded to at the time.
1: Okay, so these alternatives out there just didn't allow you to have the design and you thought that like, okay, we should build this tool because we want something different than sending a paperless post to promote our software. We want something different than like Eventbrite because that's not very customizable and not very great. So you build a tool that allowed you to build, what was the product feature set?
0: So the product feature set was, at the time, just a very simple form to collect RSVPs. Okay. And I I, I want to just double back on this because I think this is an important point for anyone building enterprise technology. We had a very clear thought, which was that brand is binary. That is either Splash's brand or it is your brand. And in the enterprise world, it was important that it was your brand. We did things like we put our logo at the bottom and not at the top, or we made it very easy to, to design it to look like you, or the emails came from you, or the vanity URL was yours. And I know that seems simple, but when we were selling it to Spotify, who was like our first customer, that was what they said they wanted. That just the fact that they could own
1: it changed their perception of what our technology was. Okay, so but you were the actual first customer because you used it to promote... The One Notebook, or is that? One Clipboard. One Clipboard, sorry. Uh, I knew that name wasn't good. (laughs) One Clipboard. User remote One Clipboard at South by Southwest. Correct. And then how did the conversation with Spotify kick off after that? Great. So we put it out there and we threw a party. And again, it was a very
0: uh, straightforward RSVP form that just captured names and looked cool. One of those RSVPs was somebody who worked at Spotify. Oh, nice. And that was our viral coefficient in the beginning. At the beginning, one out of every twenty-five people who signed up for an event turned into a host.
1: Wow! Yeah, that's amazing.
0: It really is that freemium product and the RSVP viral coefficient that's inside of that still today drives goodness about a third of our leads.
1: Wow, that's amazing.
0: We ha- we are we just crossed over twenty-five hundred on Alexa,
1: so oh, wow. we have a huge footprint on the yeah. internet. Okay, so then this person from Spotify ran their events. You knew them from a past life or something. Is that right? No. No. That was the
0: crazy part. This whole time I'd been selling one clipboard door-to-door. Yeah. Truly, as an enterprise sales rep for a two-person company. And all of a sudden, Spotify was calling me saying, hey, we need this up and running now. And then the next one was Gansevoort Hotel, which I promised at the time was very cool. Yeah, And then it was Google. Google was the next customer that RSVP and said, I
1: need a site. No, wait, really? So you had three and like three cool brands, too. Immediately. Yeah. Okay, so they used your tool. Said It said like powered by... Powered by Splash. Do so, you want to make a Splash? So you named it... You, your product was called One Clipboard, but you had a second product. That was also inside
0: of that product. And I swear, One Clipboard became the planning tab inside okay. of Splash... You had your splash and your one clipboard. Grant, I promise you at the time it seemed like it made sense. In retrospect, it is very ridiculous how long I held on to that code. What I will say is, and we're going to fast forward now six or so years to where we are today, those planning tools, I am writing a narrative for my team right now about a business that we are integrating with to really incorporate those planning tools. Cool. So I know and I would say to anyone who is, has that intuition early in their business, I knew that it was important. Yeah. And it was. It still is. But that didn't mean it was the first and most important. Sure. You know, the issue was that it didn't have any viral coefficient to it. It was a you know, door-to-door sales product. And this new one, it became so clear that it caught fire.
1: I mean, in re- in reality you were trying to sell a piece of freemium SMB software with an enterprise sales process, which just doesn't work. It's like and it didn't have all the enterprise features that it really would need in order to go out and like demand a higher price. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. We learned a lot in those early days and probably also not enough. Okay. So so you get these customers and then things just start rolling and you basically are selling Splash that as the main product. Like That's what everybody wants. That's right. Well, and we weren't even selling it.
0: They were coming to us. It was so many businesses. Were they paying you? So in the beginning, it was just we were selling uh, vanity URLs, email credits, and uh, white label your page. Okay. How much was that? So that was about $100 total
1: one-time fee (laughs) to get you that bundle. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. But that's per event. So maybe you have lots of events. Yeah.
0: We were seeing some revenue and we were able to process money, which at the time was a big deal. Yeah, sure. At that point, we said, you know, we want more money. We can layer in tickets and ticket fees. Mm. So we started building that. And so we started started to process like the dollars. Dollars started coming in. Sure. And that's a good thing, but it's also a really, really bad thing because once you have one dollar, then you start to say, well, now I need lots more dollars. And sure. investors start asking questions about those dollars and start looking at the unit economics of the business. And so, man, once we realized that we should be charging more, we said, well, what's more than $100? $2,500. And In our mind, we were like, come on, no one's paying that. Purr. Per year. Excuse oh. me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I should have mentioned, we flipped the entire model in order to do that. We said, we want to create a subscription product. Again, we were really focused on high-rise and Basecamp, so yep. an SMB subscription product. And so we launched something that we called the producer package. Oh, wow. I know. I thought it was a pretty good name.
1: And people started
0: signing up for that like hotcakes.
1: And we we started selling. And what, that was yeah. like, you could create as many events as you wanted to throughout the year. Correct. And you'd have the
0: all the white label emails, yeah. vanity URLs. And you know we had one or two people at that time who were doing customer service. And they were manning the phones. And so you had access to them if sure. you signed up for this. And so I guess anybody who's listening and thinking about pricing right now, I just wish someone, I wish you, Grant, had come up to me and just shaken me at that moment and said, if you don't sell something for more than $20,000 a year, you should just stop immediately. Unless, of course, you have a really good demand gen engine. But man, oh man, we were selling it. We were selling for $2,500 a year. And it really needed much more money to make it economically viable. You seem like you're pausing, and I want to hear why you don't agree with that.
1: So my, my pause there is, I actually think that when you're entering the market, and no one has any reason to, like, use your gear, right? You sort of need penetration pricing, right? And so that's, like, a concept in, you know, in pricing economics is, like, you need a price that you can come in at that's, like, cheap enough that people are just going to buy it, and they don't have to expect as much from it, right? So if you provide 10x the value on $2,500, they feel really good, and they tell their friends about it. If you charge them twenty k and they get twenty five thousand dollars of value, that's only a you know a small incremental bump on the actual value of their ROI, and so they feel less good about it, right? And so I think early on, like this is kind of like what funding is for, right? You want to be able to get into a lot of these customers, get the success stories. Realistically, those early customers that you got, Spotify, Google, Gansford Hotel, like they might have paid you hundred dollars, but if you got to use their logo or tell their story, like the value that you actually got, they paid you with like money, but also with like that story. That story was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars to you, right? Because you got to then say, well, look, here's how these great companies are actually, you know, sending out this stuff for their events.
0: I think that's a really good point, but I want to provide a small counter to it. Yeah, great. Pricing can often be a signal. Yep. And... While I hear you that, you know, coming in with a lower price and truly attacking a specific segment makes a ton of sense and helps you kind of really penetrate that market. If you release pricing that looks SMB, mm-hmm. you actually attract a lot of SMB. And while I hear you that it's probably you know $2500 a year is incredibly small to a Spotify, $2500 a year is huge to an SMB and they expect as much as Spotify. Sure. And so what you end up doing is you end up treating those SMB customers like enterprise. Yeah, yeah. Because they demand it. And so while I, I hear you that you should decrease your price in the early days, I would think about that $15,000 amount, or call it a thousand dollars a month, sure. is kind of the threshold before you get into a zone where you, you're playing in the enterprise, and really past that, I agree with you, yeah, right? Kind of start low. But if you go too low, oh, man, oh, man, the people you attract.
1: Oh, yeah, that's that's a great point. I mean, so I guess my perspective there is you did and you continued to have raised prices over time, right? Oh, You get yeah. more in, you figure more out. Like, who you want your users to be is actually quite important. Your pricing can kind of signal that. Mm. But so do your features, and so does how your team talks about everything. And so, you know, at that point, you might not have been ready, really, for, like, you know, the deals that you're doing today, right? You didn't have the organizational maturity, in order to make that happen. So, right. And I mean that's a nice segue to what happened next in the story is that Anheuser-Busch
0: came knocking. Okay. And they wanted a $500,000 contract. They, they, and again, we're selling $100, you know, a month contracts, or $200 a month contracts, and now a 500k contract. What did they want for 500k? They had a brand ambassador program with all of these people who went out into the world and collected information while they sampled beer. And what's really complex about the uh, spirits as well as the beer industry is that they have a three-tier system, mm-hmm. which means that the wholesalers who don't actually work and aren't legally allowed to work mm-hmm. for the brands, they are actually doing a lot of the on-site marketing in the accounts, which are the bars or the off-premise places. and so. Right there, you have this incredible instance of a forced role-based access control issue. Where you need permissioning in between two organizations, many organizations at many different levels. And here comes Anheuser-Busch to Splash and says, we need this built fast. Yeah, And so they forced us to create a very robust permissioning tool. That's awesome. It was, and incredibly challenging. We just didn't know really what we were doing. But we went after it, and we didn't even understand. We had never heard the term role-based access control. I actually hadn't really heard that term until I went onto the enterpriseready.com website, and we were like, "Oh yeah, we built that." But man, we didn't know what it was. Yeah. And so we start, we built that, and we rolled it out. We had at one point, AB was throwing hundred thousand events per year on Splash. Wow. Yeah. That's Across crazy. Across around, I don't know. There, there was probably about twenty thousand people in the system at any point. And so, what were they doing before you? Do you know, homegrown?
1: Really? Okay, so they built it. Still own
0: is. Okay. I mean, the space that I operate in, it's I feel like an enterprise seller would get a PhD. by working in this space. Mm. because it truly is. Events are the most complex, almost definitionally, the most human complex. Activity You can think of the amount of notifications, approvals, creativity, workflow, the amount of time that goes into it. I mean, we're talking about so much scale, as well as these micro important moments that you have to support in the real world. When an email doesn't go out for Marketo, oops, we press send again. Yeah, yeah. When an event doesn't go off, somebody yeah. gets fired. Yeah, yeah. Right? So we're, this has to be like NASA's tested. Right, and so, I mean, it's been an amazing experience to to be building in this space where creativity and complexity and humans all come together. And you're selling to businesses,
1: okay. And so, that Andrew Bush deal came in, and you were like, how How many people were you at that point? So we had about eight people in the okay. business. Wow. Yep. And so we were still
0: supporting this freemium product. We were supporting um, a, a, a couple, a handful. I want to say twelve. Other enterprise businesses. Mm -hmm. Nearly half of them were on the freemium product and half of them were in our enterprise system. We had certain groups that were kind of starting to join. And then Anheuser-Busch, we started building. We started building true enterprise tech. And that was our first step into the enterprise tech world.
1: And so this is a complex permissioning system because of these three tiers. And there's also some like, I mean, regulation and legal rules. so So much. You're kind of diving into those to understand and make sure that this is compliant with what they need. Yep. And did you build that in a way that another company, not in their industry, but one of the same kind of concepts, could then use the same features?
0: That's exactly right. Okay. Uh, per our Belski doctrine, build one product, yeah. we always made sure it was self-serve and easy to use for another business. Hennessy was the next one that joined up, and they okay. had a very similar use case.
1: Yeah, so you saw an opportunity within the like adult beverage industry. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
0: Truly, sampling.
1: Yeah, so yep. you were you, so like, okay, look, and Azure Bush needs this, so does every other large adult beverage company in the world. That's right. Great. And so we kept on building for that. You know, I will
0: say to our credit, we understood that events are events are events at their core. And what we understood in the beginning of our process was that if we worked very closely with our customers, built products... That they could use while also doing product discovery, we could actually build a product that could be used across many different use cases and be flexible across the enterprise. I will say it's a challenging move to make. And as we've scaled as a business, it's really no longer something we do. It really only works in the very early stages of a business to launch features and products alongside new clients. Uh, mm. launching them alongside existing clients is something that we do because we already have those existing relationships sure. but it's 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 a tight rope
1: that's actually a really interesting piece for product discoveries like I think early on you basically don't have a choice other than to work with new customers and build features that they think or that they need to see in your product right it's something that people often will caution against right don't build you know, specifically features that some organization needs, you know, tooling to pay you 500k. It's, it might be a one-off use case. And so they kind of suggest that you try to collect those feedback and then synthesize it. And you're right because, like, if you don't have a great working relationship with them, maybe you don't have, a, like, a large contract, you don't know how, if they're actually going to use it if you build the things that they ask you to build. So you take these risks early on. In your case, it really paid off, right? Building this tooling, and turns out, you know, Part of the reason we wrote Enterprise Ready is because we wanted software founders and product folks to understand the features that when you hear these requests, you should probably lean into, right? Because it's not going to be the last time you hear it. So, advanced permissioning, amazing functionality, right? If it had been some one off thing that they wanted to do or change things some other way, maybe not the best way to do it. But this is one of those features that you can just go so deep into, and bigger and bigger companies have so many requirements. so. You got that feedback from them, you built it in, they started paying you. Were you doing professional services for them at all? Like for them to be able to actually leverage those permissioning,
0: that permissioning tooling? So many professional services. Okay. I really want to underline this. In 2015 was when we started to understand what enterprise technology really was. We come from New York. New York is high design. Lots of great agencies. You know, at the time there there were some startups coming up, but they were mostly B2C. Um, you know, Warby was a big thing then, sure. right? That genre. We didn't have an old school of enterprise technology to explain this to us. Mm. And so when we heard services, we just thought, oh yeah, that's what it takes to get them up, right? And Make them happy. Yeah, and we weren't charging for it, nothing okay. like that. Yeah. We weren't charging for it. No, we had no idea. I mean, truly, it, I'd say one of the, the most important things I have done as a founder is to acknowledge the dearth of enterprise talent in New York and go search for it outside of New York or find people who really do know what they're talking about in New York City from an enterprise tech standpoint.
1: No, I understand that pretty well, being based in LA. And it's, it's really around sort of that leadership level folks that have done this before, almost all that talent's in the Bay Area, right? Or Seattle. Oh yeah, sure. Seattle. It's a great point. Yeah. So there's a bunch of folks there that have done that. It's hard to find it in other cities. And it's it's you can get great developers anywhere. You can get great designers anywhere. But getting people that really understand sort of how to scale certain components of an enterprise software business, it's hard. And what did it- difference five years
0: makes i mean if you look at new york now i am seeing tremendous talent i mean you know mongo right ipo'd recently they're throwing off a lot of incredible talent yeah Um, and that's just one and so we are seeing that in new york i do think it's changing but at the time it wasn't the case and so charging for professional services i came back and said we're not an agency guys we're not charging for that right we're software
1: yeah so yeah it's it's one of those interesting pieces where i think Maybe the tide is changing a bit. I think people are more comfortable with the idea of like having some services revenue because you're you're basically doing services work no matter what, right? You better, yeah. I
0: mean, and in a way, it was a great thing that we didn't understand that we were supposed to charge for that because we built a culture of customer success that mm-hmm. really served the client independent of dollars attached. And you know, that, I really think one of our key differentiators, especially in the early days when the product wasn't right, was building a thoughtful support and customer success team, really investing in that, and and taking a lot of pride in that team.
1: One other thing I think is is really interesting, kind of just changing a bit, is when you get into this large deal with Enterprise Polish or any of the other big deals you've done over time. I'm gonna, I'll say this. Don't mean to insult you at all, but I sort of doubt that the early splash team had a lot of like enterprise security background either. And so I'm guessing that you saw some like vendor security assessment questionnaires and were kind of like, what the Oh Do yeah. I, I mean I'm smiling here. You know. Yeah. And and
0: everything. And everything you're talking about. Training, implementations, configurations, integrations, certainly privacy, certainly security. It was a learning curve as steep as any I've ever experienced, yeah. and also, you know, we were pushing really complex. You know, it was a, we built essentially a CRM on top of a permissioning tool with shared contacts, and then matched that with an integrated CMS that needed templatization, and we were trying to run and build a business, and this is just for one customer. Yeah, we, we we
1: I mean we ran right into a wall. Yeah, and it was very scary. I mean, the interesting thing is that there was enough demand. Like the person who was. You know requesting this product from you at a B had enough sway to say look like I know that this might not be the most like robust and secure tool in the world but like it turns out the thing we're doing internally is not either. We need this so bad and this is such a big pain point for us that they were able to push it through and and maybe they're, Security teams worked with you along the way, and compliance teams worked with you along the way to make sure that that's exactly the thing right. you were delivering. Yeah, it's. I mean, and you've heard it, I'm sure, a million times. It is all about
0: making sure that champion has a voice, making them look as good as you can, and delivering and setting expectations and delivering. It's a yeah. lot of that, and and it took us to implement them. Truly implement them was
1: about six months. Oh, that's not bad at all, actually. I mean, yeah. In retrospect, yeah, you're right? You yeah. Know, uh, for you, it felt like an eternity, I'm sure.
0: Oh my gosh, every day was the scariest day of our lives. Yeah, and you know, it still is. It's a great system. It's a great plan. What I will say is that, and I hope this. I say this without uh, feeling sad about it. At some point, they decided to change the way they were doing stuff. They were bought by some Brazilians. Oh yeah. They started changing the way they did things. They ended up rebuilding it from scratch on top of Salesforce. At some point. Mm. And while that was certainly sad at the time, that was you know three years later, and you know the organization had changed tremendously. The Anheuser Busch organization had, and we ended up using that technology for so many different clients. Sure. And and finally, what I will say is, four years now afterwards, we're rebuilding our, our BAC. So that ended up lasting us about four years, mm. which is a pretty good lifespan for a piece of enterprise
1: tech. Yeah, it's amazing. And so, like, interesting with the, the Salesforce mention, did you? Do you guys integrate with Salesforce today. We and, do. Oh yeah, yeah. deep integration. Um,
0: right? it, it's a bit nuanced, but essentially, the difference between what they were doing and what they needed of us—they were doing a lot less on-site marketing, mm-hmm. and a lot of our value prop was the sizzle on-site, mm-hmm. less the capture. We did both, but they essentially started. They said we don't really need as much sizzle on-site, and mm-hmm. so they went into a Salesforce instance. I would. You know, I'd put out there, uh, and anyone at AB, call me if this is actually launched. I don't. Who knows if they've launched it yet? So uh, you know, someone had a good idea to build it homegrown. I I have no idea if it's actually out. Build versus buy, always the fun one.
1: Yeah. Okay, so then, one thing you mentioned earlier, which I thought was really interesting, was this combination as a founder of as you're building this first version of your software and you're really involved in product. It's like kind of trying to balance that execution. With also fundraising in the external world and trying to get people to see the bigger vision. Yeah. You mentioned some challenges around this.
0: Yeah, I think the most important thing I've learned as a founder and a CEO, and certainly going from founder to CEO has been an interesting evolution for me, is that time and kind of your perception of time changes as the product evolves and as the company gets bigger. Um, in the early days, you're really dealing with couple months at a time, if not a month at a time, time spans. And when you make a decision, you're probably seeing that through and you need to see at least a couple months ahead. When you're you know, uh, handling 500 companies, which is about the stage that we're at right now, you need to see about three years ahead. You need to. And so that goes from a month to three years. That's a huge delta. And you know, what happened to me uh, really kind of early in our evolution was that I was fundraising. And I was also deeply involved in product, and when you're fundraising three years out, and that's what the story you have to tell. you must be that visionary in order to raise the capital if you're not checking yourself and actually executing today, which is what product needs you know again, product is probably now to a couple months out. You can really screw some stuff up because product requires that level of deep focus, and so you know as any if there are any uh Product-oriented CEOs out there, I would urge you to really think about where you're existing and where the team needs you to exist versus where the investors need you to exist. That's been a really uh, challenging education period for me.
1: I've felt that pain. I know my co-founders felt that pain, and it's interesting you you kind of pointed out. I think you said just acknowledging it is like a really like kind of important first step.
0: Totally, right. Because often you're having conversations with your team about the three-year vision, and they're telling you about a bug they're fixing, you know, for tomorrow, right? And so, you know, by acknowledging it, it's one step to letting them know that you're not talking about that. But look, I, what I will say is, and this is deep credit to my team; they have come along for the vision ride with me, mm-hmm. and sometimes they are just like, man. I can't focus on the vision I need to focus on today. And that's their job and they're awesome for it. Yeah. And so, in a way, as a founder, you need to kind of acknowledge and check yourself.
1: Yeah. Especially when you're in the product really deep. I mean, switching hats and putting it, you know, going from like, hey, let me tell you about why this is going to be a, you know, $200 million a year business in three or four years to like, let me fix this one customer workflow and make this integrate better with some tool and make sure that that end to end flow feels great if you're the product leader and the CEO trying to do both of those at the same time.
0: Oh man, and you know Grant, I know you've experienced this too. So I, I mean I'd love your thoughts on it, but even having product conversations I find to be relatively dangerous if you're operating too far in advance. Because they see you as the CEO. Your voice, especially when the business changes from like 12 to 20 people, at some point you're the boss of 20 people and that's how you're viewed. And so you're no longer just a voice. You're not even allowed to be just a voice in a product conversation and you're kicking around ideas on a whiteboard. All of a sudden, you are the boss of 20 people and that's a much louder megaphone.
1: Yeah, so there's a couple things that I do to help curtail that. And number one, most of my product conversations are just with my CTO and co-founder Mark, who's actually sort of the product leader. So I'll talk to him and we'll go through things. And that's kind of longer term vision and other ideas. And then I let him sort of figure out how to make sure that we're executing that appropriately. Um, And now he has even one other layer, which is our director of engineering, who spends time with the engineering team to make sure we're building the right things. The other thing that I try to do whenever I'm talking to people, especially around like front end stuff, is just say like, I'm not the CEO saying this. This is a personal preference thing, potentially. Like, you have the agency here to decide if, like, what's right. To me, this feels off. And some, but like, I'm totally fine with you. If you're like, no, Grant, you're wrong. Like, this is the right answer. Like, you should say that. I think acknowledging is good. It probably still influences. I was going right? to say, yeah. good luck. Yeah.
0: The first one, I think, is the only answer, which is to level, you know, add levels and layers in between you and the team and make sure that you're being clear with them that you're one input. But certainly, I can't tell you how many times I've come up to somebody and just even given some uh, a congratulations or said something negative about what they're working on, and uh, have gotten it in an HR conversation, oh, or geez. you know, yeah. I mean, or gotten it from their manager saying, "Hey, did you mention this?" And it's like, you know, it's a different place that you're coming from, and so I, I think the only answer at this point is to hire really great people and filter those conversations through them. It doesn't mean you don't have great relationships with your people. I love my people. I love working with them. I love seeing their work. I hope they'll show me more of their work and I promise
1: I won't. You yeah. Know? Yeah. React too strongly. Yeah, yeah.
0: It's it's been a learning curve. But
1: so, yeah. So one of those things you just mentioned that I think is interesting is you said hire great people, right? And so I think you, you mentioned you have a framework you use around creating clarity and roles yeah. in hiring, you know, and really trying to find the right people. Like, what's what's your framework for that? Okay, so at
0: some point in around 2016,
1: I read the book. Who have you read this book? I have not. Oh, you got it.
0: Everyone has to read the book. It's the best book. All right. Uh, in in so many words, the the thing that I noticed after reading that book that everybody in my organization did was they would have a meeting with this person and they would say a couple things about the business and then ask the exact same questions in every single interview. And then after the interview, they would write a note saying. I really liked him. And honestly, if, especially if we're talking about implicit bias, what they probably were saying was, this person went to a pretty good school, spoke with a smile, and seemed like they had good experience. That's kind of what they meant. Sure. And they weren't spending the time understanding, did this person actually meet the criteria that this specific role required? Um, what we started doing after reading this book and then you know, iterating on this process is coming up with, uh, they call it a scorecard. And it essentially means very specific uh, objectives that this person is meant to hit, key results that this person is meant to hit, qualities that this person is meant to have, um, and experience that this person is meant to have. And specificity is the most important thing here. Specificity is a big deal. If you can't be specific about the role, I would challenge anyone who's hiring if they can't be so specific, then they don't actually know what they're hiring for. That doesn't mean do the person's job for them, but be incredibly clear in the hiring process. That's number one. But also specificity from the candidate. If they can't speak very specifically about their experience or their ideas or their perspective, and they can't go three or four levels into that, guess what? They haven't done that job. Or they, they don't really know how to do that job, or they're they're really stretching, so at least know that. And then what we do is we make sure to equip every single new interview with a question that we've all agreed upon and we've agreed upon what we're looking for mm. before they walk into that room. And what we find is it's really not so hard. You need 3 or 4 questions, 3 or 4 great questions and you spend, you know, three levels on each of those questions. And if mm. people can come back and they can say, "Hey, this person spoke specifically, had great ideas, you know, communicated well about them and kind of I realized also met these qualities," what they might also say is, "I couldn't figure this out." And I will say that that's one of the most important things you can get your team to start saying. Hey, I couldn't figure this out in the meeting. Can mm-hmm. you try to figure that out? Can you figure out if this person actually has great copywriting skills? Can you figure out if this person has actually led as big of a team as they say or, or if you know they actually were kind of a cog in the wheel? You know, Can you figure this out is a really useful thing to understand.
1: So sort of narrow down the like, hey, These things all seem like checkboxes, but like this one I'm not 100% on. I'm still, jury's still out on it. Correct.
0: Really treat your team as if they're coloring in a coloring book together. Mm -hmm. And the end result is a beautiful picture of that candidate. And if you guys can actually align there, you can find great people. And I will say we have knocked people out of the process incredibly late in the process. And of course, you want to get it as early as possible, but better to not hire that person. Right than to hire the wrong person, and actually, what I'll also say is better to also not hire the wrong role. Sometimes in a process, you realize that this person is great, but you still don't have total team alignment on that role, Mm. and so that's why the scorecard and being very specific and object oriented around that scorecard, objective oriented.
1: So the it's interesting. So the idea of creating the scorecard you think is actually a really important part of the overall process because it defines the role, it defines everything else you're looking for, it gets alignment for the team around what, like what this person's going to do. Absolutely. About. And if you need an economic
0: model to explain it, I mean, you can do the math yourself. But if this person, let's just say, costs $100,000 and they're going to be working for you for about two years if they're mediocre. Mm-hmm. right? And so if they're bad, sure, you'll get rid of them. But you don't, rarely do you know how good or bad someone is right? But you do know that in about two years, you're going to have to get rid of somebody who's mediocre. And if they're great, they're about three years to four years. If you can, if you can keep them. Oh man, that's $200,000. And then the effects on the business right yeah. there, it's worth spending time to write you know, one page about what this is and to get that team's alignment around the role. I find that slowing down that hiring process in order to get that right has fundamentally changed what our team looks like. And that's been one of the Biggest, most important things we have done, especially in a market like New York, where not everybody knows the tune to sure. enterprise technology, yeah. and so you kind of you have to work through that song together.
1: Yeah, it, it's also kind of hitting on your, your point from earlier. It's amazing how an ecosystem can evolve with just like a handful of you know companies that have scaled in, in this in the area, right? So Mongo and Security Scorecard and whoever else, right? Like these actual deep enterprise software companies. Kick off these people that have done these roles, right? Because all you have to do is go do it for two or three years. Yeah. And now you're like very well equipped to go lead it at the next place, right? That's exactly so right. So it spins up all these people. I do think we're looking at a very
0: new New York.
1: Uh, you know, I'm speaking
0: uh, as if New York is in 2013. 2019 New York. Oh man, we yeah. we have some great enterprise talent, and we have a lot of people that have come from the Bay Area and from Seattle and have worked with us. Uh, we've also built companies that serve many of those companies, so we've gotten a chance to see their playbooks as well. Sure. And what I will say, and you know, I'm speaking to all my counterparts out in, you know, on the Bay Side, when you match that with the grittiness and the creativity that New York offers, I think you have a pretty cool ecosystem. So yeah. I'd urge anyone who's not building SaaS
1: in New York to take another look. Yeah. No. I mean, it's also People sometimes just want to get out of SF. They've been there for a while and they want to come to a great city like New York or LA or wherever else they might want to go. So,
0: and I'll do another plug for LA. I spent a lot of time in LA. Grant's building one of the best enterprise companies in LA, but you're also seeing a lot of enterprise people head to LA. I, I, I'm really impressed with that ecosystem.
1: Yeah, it turns out it's an incredible place to live, so people just want to be there. It makes it the, easy. You and your birds and yeah, exactly. your matcha. Okay, so then what's the most important role that you've hired in the last six months? Oh, man. Executive coordinator. Oh, what? Okay. True true story. We've hired a lot of
0: amazing executives. I hired a VP engineering, a VP product, a chief strategy officer. Sure. All have been very important. I will say that as a CEO at this stage, we have about 150 people. Mm -hmm. I did need somebody to really help me scale myself. And so, hiring somebody who is incredibly bright and thoughtful and could really help me stay disciplined around where my focus lies has been a, a game changer for me personally.
1: Oh, interesting. And so that person came on recently and it just is focused on... Leveraging me. How can we create more leverage out of Ben? How can we
0: get Ben to focus on the most important things? I I mean, look, I I think that that's kind of a cop-out answer. I think that anybody who's listening to this is thinking about their executive team. I will say a a thought that's really important in building a team is this. Just because you don't have the headcount does not necessarily mean that you don't have the role. Mm. And I think that's been an unlocker in understanding my business just because you have a head of CS does not mean that you shouldn't have that person be thinking about implementation, right? Mm-hmm. There is a role for implementation even if there isn't a headcount. And so kind of seeing what best in-class enterprise technology stacks look like from a people standpoint... Yeah and acknowledging that you have one person doing two of those roles at least acknowledging that is a really important first step and then what you start to do is you start to fill in those roles with best in class people and actually become positions not just roles but i think just making sure you understand that has really changed my understanding of the business
1: yeah it's actually a great point there is just like there's a similar feature set which you know we the enterprise ready features Almost every enterprise software company has a very similar organizational structure, right? And I think acknowledging that and knowing how that organizational chart maps to your organization, right? Because you're right. It's like, okay, everybody is doing, you know, sales and marketing and customer success and implementation and support. And like you can kind of map out the whole list, right? product marketing product like you you go like write every executive role down and realize that and you kind of understand what the different you know like aspects of that job is and even if you only have 8 people total you're doing all of those roles that's exactly right right
0: and so it just totally acknowledging that and, and acknowledging it almost publicly and saying, hey, you're doing two roles and we need that of you right now. And that will change with scale. But right now, we need you to operate as such. It, it gives you a much easier framework to operate in. And it also acknowledges the reality of how you're actually working.
1: Yeah, that's great. I mean, you're so right. I think I'll I'll actually write a little blog post up about that at some hey, point. Hey, winner. So, I like it's a it. a good one. Yeah, because it's like, There are so many pieces of what you're doing every day and understanding when you're putting on or who's putting on different hats. I mean, like, well, you know, you actually do implementation, right? Yep. You do education. Yeah. You do training. You do professional services. You do all of them. Yeah.
0: But are you you acknowledging that? Are you just kind of telling somebody they're doing one thing, right? And they're actually doing
1: five? Yeah. That's a great point. You know, you think about, early on, product leaders end up really taking on a lot of those oh, yeah. roles, right? So
0: And customer success, you'd be surprised. Yeah. I mean, look, under my customer success team, and I think this is hopefully helpful for anyone who's building it, we have, he has customer success, which is different than customer support. Mm-hmm. Then he has education, implementation. We have something uh, kind of uh, creative design services. That's more of our service arm on the creative sure. end. Then he has uh, the data team. You know, The data team works very closely with him, so kind mm-hmm. of reporting uh, from a customer success standpoint. And then there's also a tight handshake with uh, solutions consulting. So those are going to be the people who are configuring in advance. And what I need to tell everyone is that all of those roles are now departments with several people in each. And that is a new evolution as of probably 18 months ago. But certainly we've been doing all of those things.
1: Yeah, exactly. Okay. So then what's next for Splash? Like what are you guys working on? Is it is yeah. it more and more enterprise? Does it go down market? How it do you is think about it?
0: More enterprise by focusing on our core. You know, I, I think we are really lucky to have gotten to a point where we have critical mass of customers and a very clear value proposition. We've hired an incredible executive team that has just started this year. And really starting in Q one, we have all of these executives have been ramped our plans are really clear and it pains me grant pains me to say we need to step on the brakes hmm. you know as a founder as a go go get 'em founder I, yeah. I i want to go as fast as we can and i want to build this incredible vision i mean our goal is to make it unbelievably easy for businesses to host meaningful events and as i see into the future of events i see these things happening in a click Right? I see the entire event coming together with the right people in the room, getting the right experience and leaving with something beautiful in their hearts. But in order to accomplish that, I need my business to take a quick step back and to really focus on what made us good in the first place and make our customers who have been asking for features and, and you know, higher quality issues to, to really feel loved. And so we're doing that and we're spending about a year doing that. And we've been spending this last you know, quarter really planning for that next stage. And I'm I'm really proud of the team for coming and rallying around it because it, it, it's brave to say we're going to slow down. And it's brave to say, hey, you know what? We have a couple customers who would be really happy if we really focused on that. And so that's what we're doing this year. I think net-net, it's going to set us up to become a much, much bigger business. I hope when someone's listening to this podcast in 2021, they're like, man, Ben really, he made the right move there. Uh, he really focused on the core and really scaled this thing up.
1: That's a really interesting way to talk about that because I think, it doesn't necessarily feel like the sexiest move, right? We're going to, you know, focus on the core. Do we do better, right? Everyone's like, oh, here's the next thing, right? The next thing and the next thing. Here's how it's like, here's how we're going to expand. And in reality, it's like, well, you already have this existing thing and it's not perfect. And the more you can pump into that and make that experience better and, like, improve the core, I mean, that is where your business is. So I, I actually... I think that's a really, probably the right movement. I don't know your business that well, but I can see how many businesses would benefit from that approach more often. Right? Absolutely, and again, it's
0: very scary because you need to grow. Cash is a really beautiful thing. Sure, we've really, as a business, changed the marketplace. So now, uh, much of our differentiated product—you uh, know—they're copycats, even at larger businesses, kind of mm-hmm. coming after us. So, of course, we want to differentiate more. Yeah. It's scary, man. I mean, you're building tech, you know, in the 21st century. And so you want to go fast. Uh, and also, you see all these great businesses like, you know, Uber and, you know, Facebook who are adding products left and right and buying businesses. So you want to go as fast as they are. I, as I said, I'm really proud of our team for taking a step back. And, you know, they came from them and it came from our customers. And they said, let's let's really focus back.
1: And will that be what, like adding in, you said you're going to rebuild your base access control. Build some new, like. Create Flow
0: is really exciting for us. Okay, great. We're just gonna make the Create Flow uh, much easier and do more stuff, sure, but kind of built off of core tech. Yeah. We're gonna go back into our CMS and really just kind of make it more fun. And we're, we're changing the nav so that the nav just feels better. And that is not sexy to change a sure. navigation system. And anything
1: like, you know, any of the other enterprise ready features, like more advanced reporting or deeper integrations. Uh, deeper integrations, for oh, right. sure. But,
0: but even that, we're, we're not saying let's add more integrations. We're just saying let's deepen. go make our core integrations more robust. Yeah, and that. let's sell to the clients that are using those. Uh, let's focus on our API a bit. It's all of those things that are really things that we're already doing in a really significant and scaled way. How do we just make the NPS score for each of those products go a little bit higher? And if we can do that, uh, you know, look, anyone who's running an enterprise business, you know this retention is the one. Pick a metric, that's the one. And so we're focusing on that metric this year. And I will say, you know, this is actually now we're going to geek out a bit on metrics. We changed our KPI. We run our business with five KPIs. And we decided this year to change one of our KPIs from net negative churn, which, you know, the net churn to gross churn. And we said we're going to be focusing on gross churn, not net churn.
1: Okay. Meaning so that. So explain the difference.
0: Sure. Net churn uh, is all the money you lose plus all of the money you expand, and you're looking to get it above 100% uh, so that you are expanding more than you're losing. So that's so called net negative so churn. So
1: re- recurring revenue that goes away and then recurring revenue from existing customers that grows. Correct. Put those together. Hopefully that's bigger than, you know, than one, right? Correct, and yeah. and we have a great percentage there. We feel really good about sure. that. But what's important, especially as you're thinking
0: about kind of your the stability and kind of robustness of your core product, is that that can often it can kind of hide some warts. Sure, in that you know you might be losing a lot of gross revenue. And you know, you're, you're kind of expanding enough that you don't really notice it. Uh, we as a business, and we do this quite publicly, inter- well, at least internally, we say, hey, this is how we're, why we're changing this metric. And we're mm-hmm. going to be focusing on it. We're going to be projecting against this metric. We're going to be thinking about this all day, all night. And really, we're doing that for our customers yeah. because they scream loudest through their retention metric. Sure. We never it to get there. We hope that we can get them excited before that happens. It's a really important way to think about it.
1: Okay, so that's one. What are the other core metrics you? So think about?
0: Uh, last year was MRR. Sure. Uh, CAC ratio. So I would say anyone who's raising Series B or C, the CAC ratio is the only one. Hmm. Uh, just it's an efficiency. It's dollars in, dollars out. Uh, they so, call it
1: the magic number. So 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 talk more about that one.
0: Sure. So uh, if you spend a dollar on marketing spend in Q1, and you get a dollar back in Q2. But it's gross margin adjusted. So let's just say you have a 70% gross margin. Um, that will be about a 0.7 CAC ratio because mm-hmm. you know it's 0.7 back of the one that you spent. Mm-hmm. Magic number is another way to see it. And people calculate it differently. I would look at, I think Matrix has the best one here. Okay. Um, scale ventures also has a good way of explaining this. Sure. But anyway, that number, it's dollars in, dollars out, quarter to quarter. And so it's payback period, is another way to think about it. Sure. And you really end up seeing the business in a really You know, naked way. Yeah. You know, it's the most naked of the numbers. Now, what I will say is especially as you're growing the business, you want to invest more. And so sometimes it might dip, and you'll see these businesses go like their CAC ratio will go like 0.5 and then up to one point two. And that's probably too high, one point two. You're not spending enough to grow. Mm -hmm. You need to acquire new customers and you know, expand existing customers. So you do need to spend on that. It's not to say that there is the right number, but there's probably a right number for the right stage and right time and right cycle of any business and we find it's just a really helpful way for us to keep control of burn i mean again we spoke a bit earlier about time and seeing ahead that's probably the hardest part of our job as enterprise founders is that we are forced to think years in advance so that we can make investments now sure. both on marketing and on product and on sales so that CAC ratio is a helpful way to kind of watch that trend line and so we report out on that the other ones uh, we've just added in two new KPIs um active users. Okay. Monthly users. Uh, so, kind of now that we're at a scale, we, we can kind of see across all of our user base, seeing how active they are and kind of measuring and projecting against that. Does that include with the freemium or is it just paid? Just enterprise. Okay. We call it business users. Yeah, certainly it. the freemium is interesting, but that's not the metric. Um, and we, we do even segment that down in further analysis. But we're always thinking, okay, how do we make sure people are active in the system? How do we make sure that we're actually getting value? And the last one is a company oriented one, which is unplanned attrition, unplanned people leaving without sure. us planning for them to leave. Sure. Look, what I will say for any Investor listening, we're we're actually doing
1: quite well on all of them. but yeah, right? yeah, it's because course. we're
0: focusing on them. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's it's what I love is the idea. What you said with gross churn, because you're like, look, it's very easy for us to want to look at the metrics that are the the most vanity oriented, right? Whatever metrics feel the best, because like we all have some metrics where we're kicking ass, totally, right? But like, unless that's just some superpower that like is just going to drive your whole business. Looking at the ones that you're just going to continuously do well on is not how you actually are going to fix the problems, right? It's just making yourself feel better. So you, you know, you probably have a few vanity metrics that you'll share with people randomly to just you know uh, get them get them excited. But the ones that you drive your business by shouldn't be the vanity ones. They should be the ones that are like actually going to make an impact. And if there's an opportunity for you to like. You know, chase those down, you should. And so,
0: and it really, it is crazy how when you pick only a few metrics and you make them important to the business, and if you think about each of those metrics as having one stakeholder associated with it. Mm. So, there are going to be some metrics that are very important to new investors, some that will be very important to existing, some that will be important to the executive team, some that will be important to the customers, and some that will be important to the total team. Right, and if you can say, "Hey, this really matters to that key stakeholder," and you make it important, it actually just fundamentally changes your business. You just start focusing on different things, and you can actually drive the business by projecting and watching those particular metrics.
1: Love that. Well, Ben, I know our time's about up. You got to run here in a minute. I just want to see if you have any parting words anywhere to end.
0: Oh man. Well, thanks for this. You know, I, I will say anyone who's listening already knows about your site. So I, we have used your site and been really thoughtful about how. We've built our business because of Enterprise Ready, and so I, I want to thank you. Hey,
1: of course, and please keep on building there. it.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and I guess what I would say to any founder out there is the ride is long, but it is so valuable to build workflow and data-oriented tools that can change people's professions and change their lives. And so I, I want to urge everyone to keep on building out there and build awesome stuff and, and good luck. And if you want a shoulder to cry on, you can always call me.
1: Yeah, we spend a lot of time at work, and so having experiences that are not terrible and tools that we love using, right? Like it, it makes a big, big difference, in huge lives. difference, and it is so fun when it works. Yeah, it's the best. <laughs> and look, if you're
0: selling enterprise technology, don't forget there's no better sales method than an event. Just saying, yeah,
1: just saying. Ab- and I got a heck true. of a piece of product for you if you're, yeah. you're thinking those terms. <laughs> Check it out, splash that.com. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. This podcast is also brought to you by my company, Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications to their largest enterprise customers. Check us out at replicated.com.